Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. Welcome, everyone, to this new episode of GenCast, where we're going to continue our discussion into collaborative endeavors across the biotech and pharma industries with some particular attention to how some emerging markets across the globe are handling these efforts. Now, we dove into this subject in some previously related podcasts, uh, the links for which are on the Gen website at genengnews.com slash mlab. So make sure you check out all that great content. Today, we have a diverse array of thought leaders that are part of our podcast panel. So let's go ahead and meet them, shall we? Panel, if you could tell the Gen audience a little bit about yourselves, that'd be great. Hello, Jeff. I am Jorge Estrada, the head of customer applications team in process solutions at Millipore Sigma, responsible for Latin America. Thanks for having us. Hi, this is Peter Pitts. I'm the president of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest and a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine, and I'm a former FDA associate commissioner. Glad to be here. Hi, I'm Jeff Cambricos. I'm principal at BioPharmaVision Advisors, and in recent years, I've led the government affairs uh, teams uh, for GSK and MSD in the Gulf region. Hi, I'm Anissa Bumlik. I'm a biomanufacturing strategy and market expert and directing one of the business line of uh, bioprocessing unit at Millipore Sigma. Well, panel, thanks so much for introducing yourselves. We really appreciate it and welcome to this GenCast. Um, so let's dive into the uh, first question that we have for all of you. Um, and it's kind of an interesting one. And again, it kind of starts everything off really well. Uh, for this conversation. So the question I have is, what kind of collaboration did we see during the pandemic that we wouldn't have normally witnessed outside the context of a global crisis? Yeah, I think that's the great lesson learned from COVID-19, which is when the entire ecosystem pulls in the same direction. And by that, I mean, not just pharmaceutical industry and government, but academia, patient groups, pharmacists, healthcare providers, when we all pull in the same direction, we can accomplish amazing things very fast. And if we can put that collaborative mindset towards other disease states, uh, we will have come out of COVID-19 with a very valuable lesson. Yeah, I pick up on that, Jeff, uh, pick up on Peter's point. Um, I think we saw globally uh, companies announcing all kinds of uh, uh, manufacturing uh, and R&D partnerships, um, so this kind of proved that companies could could compete fiercely, but also could collaborate fiercely. Uh, at the local level, that is the regional country level, I think we also saw a, an unmatched level of collaboration, typically through the trade associations, where uh, the companies uh, would, would collectively uh, brief the uh, officials, policymakers on scientific medical progress against the pandemic, and also try to work on some of the potential barriers to rapid uptake of these emerging technologies. Jeff, I agree with my colleagues. In addition, I just would like to highlight that during the crisis, we reported more than 90 collaborations in a year, in a single year. Outside the context of a global crisis, we had about this number of collaborations, but in approximately 20 years. 
in my opinion, the two more important kinds of collaboration I have seen are first, is a collaboration between the academia or research institutes with pharmaceutical companies, of course, and the other collaboration between two or more pharmaceutical companies. Yes, I would like to remark that the role that the governments and regulatory agencies played during the crisis, making decisions to accelerate the vaccine development, the approval, the production, distribution, and vaccination process was very good. Finally, I think that these two kinds of collaboration must remain after the crisis, especially in emerging markets, of course, to continue expanding the capabilities, technologies, know-how to satisfy the global health needs. Yeah, that's an important point. Let me pick up on that. You know, this is something that didn't only happen within individual countries or regions, but it was really a, a global decision to collaborate with exceptions. But again, the more you collaborate, the more you want to collaborate, we can accomplish great things together. Maybe I can I can build on that as well, because I think we just have to, when it comes to vaccine, we have to remind ourselves that before COVID, there were few sites in the world that were able to manufacture routine vaccines or even kind of flu vaccines, which are typical the ones we think of when it comes to a pandemic. But for this time, and it's really about the fact that certain companies have decided to establish global network but not like their own sites. I mean, they had to rely on other sites that or contract manufacturing organization that were not manufacturing vaccine before. And I think that's quite historical, unprecedented, obviously. And they had to work very closely to transfer technology, but in a very, very uh, fast manner. And I think that's something we've never seen before, definitely. All right, well, thanks, panel. That's a great way to start off this podcast. Um, I, in the previous podcast that I mentioned uh, in my opening, uh, we did talk about some emerging regions like Latin America and the Gulf. So my next question is, how do you think these regions uh, led the way in terms of collaborations prior to and during the pandemic? Well, I think these were both regions that prior to COVID staked out a claim to wanting to be biopharmaceutical hubs. You know, and certainly the Gulf region lived up to that promise, you know, Abu Dhabi, manufacturing vaccines, leading the way to getting pharmacists to uh, give uh, inoculations at, at local pharmacies. Latin America similarly used a lot of very creative methods to get their populations vaccinated and to understand the relative value of different types of vaccines. So I think it, it allowed regions outside of the, the traditional biotech hubs to step up and, and strut their stuff. Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly pick up on that. Thank you, Peter. The um... I think there was a, you know, there was a pretty well established um, p policy dialogue platform at the industry level, uh, and also, you know, led by some of the more um, active companies in in the government affairs and policy sphere. But that we were already looking and, and discussing with officials um, important healthcare reforms, initiatives, partnerships, but also how to um, enable. Gulf countries to become global competitors in life sciences and biopharma. So that tradition, if you will, of regular dialogue, consultation, open door, uh, the private sector welcome to share our views, I think that that really set things up very well for the day when the pandemic started to bite and we needed to intensify that collaboration and step up those dialogues. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, in LATAM, local market leaders have also become competitive due to government support and collaborations with multinational drug makers, favoring in that way the tech transfer for biologics and other innovative medicines in order to be produced locally for the region and to export overseas, displacing in some cases the classical pharma production. Anyway, as you must know, Jeff, this is a learning curve, and of course, we are there to support with our MLAB and technical team. I think it also reinforced, certainly in uh, in Latin America and South America, the value of innovation. You know, a, a lot of times, you know, the innovation conversation gets caught up in a reimbursement and pricing conversation. But I think that the COVID products from vaccines to therapeutics to diagnostics really reminded everybody uh, that innovation really does drive healthcare. Maybe I wanted to add some insights as well on um, going back a little bit to the Middle East, but then maybe adding a little bit also about Africa. Prior COVID, and I definitely agree with my, my colleague said earlier, is that there were um, early, uh, definitely early projects to start to reduce dependency because that's that's the situation is that most of the biologicals and in particular vaccines are import are actually imported and. Um, and, and I would say that Africa maybe is a bit more complex. There's a number of countries that needs also to to align. But there is an, uh, an association called the Africa Vaccine Manufacturing Initiative who had been working for the last 10 years to trying to shape a little bit more, uh, the help shaping policies and, and advocate for increasing vaccine manufacturing in the continent. Um, but I would say definitely COVID has accelerated situation in Africa. In the Middle East, I wanted to highlight the example of Saudi Arabia. Even prior COVID, they realized this uh, risk associated with biomanufacturing. And I think it's kind of also talking a little bit about this innovation lead as well. Here, instead of doing like most of the countries, which uh, like what's the situation in Africa, is that you basically import bulk, which is already manufactured in another continent or country, and then you just do the last step of the manufacturing. So you still rely on external sources. Saudi Arabia has decided to start earlier and created an ecosystem that will allow innovation, will allow also scientific tech transfer and technology transfer so that they can own the process end-to-end. And I think that has helped already provide this foundation prior COVID crisis. Well, thanks so much, all of you, for the insights there. I think this theme of collaboration is something that obviously that we've talked about a lot in all of these podcasts, and it's really interesting to see how other regions of the world um, have you know, handled this and collaborated together. But one thing that we have heard from the gen audience that they're interested in and, and love to get your guys' take on this is really how policymakers are involved. So I guess my next question really is, you know, how can global policymakers learn from these uh, collaborative efforts that took place during the pandemic? And, and what do you think can be sustained from this? You know, I think there are two main lessons. The first is that if you don't reward innovation, you don't get innovation. Uh, we were lucky in many respects relative to the vaccines. We hit on the right targets early. But generally speaking, in- innovation happens incrementally. And if you don't reward it through various uh, reimbursement mechanisms and, and generally speaking, investment opportunities, companies will invest in other things. And, and really, that can't be allowed, I think. And secondly, and we really haven't touched on this issue, it's not just about uh, the technical aspects of developing healthcare technologies. It's also about educating the public about how to use them properly. Uh, if we don't advance global health literacy, uh, shame on us. 
I think the issues of vaccine denial and, and vaccine misinformation got out of control because we generally have a population that doesn't understand what healthcare te- technologies do. So I think one of the lessons is we've got to own that platform as well. And what we have seen as well, and just wanted to add, is, is that because of the, the pandemic, we've seen an increase of nationalism. And I think uh, policymakers need to be very aware of uh, the fact that, all, of course, it is important to reduce uh, uh, risk and dependency on other uh, countries, but no single country can hope to create a completely self-sufficient and sustainable manufacturing, which means that policymakers need also to foster collaboration uh, Uh, alongside the entire supply chain uh, um, with different countries and different regions. They need also to put the right funding. They need also to think the impact of trade. Obviously, geopolitics has a huge impact. And looking also, for example, at tariffs that needs also to be uh, lifted, especially in those critical times. So there is always this, um, I would say, uh, dilemma about building on-site capacity but we know that without collaboration, it is impossible for one country to survive such a crisis or even to grow biological manufacturing. Yeah, I'm not sure, um, you know, if any country today is entirely 100% self-sufficient in uh, in biopharmaceuticals. And I'm not even sure that, you know, that the, the, the level of investment and, and tying up capital uh, that it would take to achieve total self-sufficiency is a desirable goal. What I, what I, and and companies are going to look for economies of scale uh, in a global trading uh, system. But um, I think what what the pandemic accelerated was policymakers, healthcare officials, uh, officials in the ministries of economy, industry, commerce, taking a much deeper look, trying to understand. Uh, what makes this industry tick and uh, why there are 20 countries at the top today that garner about 80% of of global investment in the sector. And I think here, you know, the, the folks who could look just beyond the, you know, the horizon of the immediate challenges of, of COVID and the pandemic started to take a good look at, at, at the at gaps between um, where they stood and high standard intellectual property. Peter talked about pricing and reimbursement policies, very important, regulatory, taxation, labor policies. So I was impressed in the Gulf. We came out of the pandemic and, um, you know, a number of, of governments are saying we need to take a fresh look at this if we're going to be globally competitive, get into the top 20, what we call the P20 countries, really the winner's circle in biopharma. Uh, here are the gaps and here's here are the policies we need to put in place to become more globally competitive. You know, to pick up on Jeff's point, you know, the, the, the success here doesn't mean going back to the status quo prior to COVID. It's about the next normal, about what comes next. And I think one of the great lessons learned that Jeff mentioned was the global supply chain. Uh, we realized that the global supply chain really is only as strong as its weakest link. For example, when Shanghai closes down because of an outbreak of COVID, all of a sudden, there's a, uh, a, a terrible shortage of, of, um, of uh, contrast agent in the United States. You know, we, have to, we have to recognize that the supply chain needs to be uh, more robust for all sorts of products, not just pandemic products. 
Yeah, Peter has a very good point here. Actually, I consider that policymakers should continue incentivizing the collaboration, especially between companies, to spread their knowledge and technologies in more companies around the world and in that way be able to satisfy the demand we have in the public health sector and to be prepared for the next pandemic. What kind of incentives am I referring, Jeff? I think some monetary benefits and public recognizing that may work as a publicity for them. Thanks so much. This, this is a great uh, opportunity to talk about the future. And I guess the parting shot for me is this is not about going back to where we were. It's about looking forward and accomplishing great things. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I think that was a great talk. And it was, it was a pleasure to be here with this amazing team. Thank you. I do also hope that uh, uh, this pandemic is highlighting the fact that we definitely have uh, weaknesses in our biomanufacturing system and, and sustainability in general. And there is a lot of still a lot of things to do, but hopefully uh, together and thanks to more collaboration, we can advance uh, at that. So thank you so much. I was uh, very happy to participate with you today. Well, there's a saying that uh, we should never waste a crisis. And... Um... It would be a pity if, if we weren't taking uh, some of the lessons that, that were hard-earned uh, during the pandemic, taking them forward to inform uh, policymaking affecting biopharmaceutical innovation and investment around the world. I do think that um, the, there are a number of countries that are, are putting very smart policies in place, and they're going to garner, they will reap the, the rewards the secret sauce in all this is, is, is very simple, actually. It's, it's an open dialogue. It's talking to the private sector, policymakers in regular contact, having a dialogue platform, advisory councils with the private sector so that we all know um, what will propel innovation going forward. All right, panel, thank you so much for this discussion. I really appreciate it. This is obviously going to be an ongoing uh, podcast discussion uh, obviously, collaborative efforts are continuing uh, to move along, but we really appreciate your guys' insight into this topic, uh, something that's obviously very interesting to the gen audience and they would like to know more about. So we really appreciate you joining us today. Hopefully, for the audience, you'll tune in to another GenCast with us in the near future. And like I said, make sure you check out some more of those podcasts that we put together. That's at genengnews.com slash MLab. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Pogaliskas. <laughs>